Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topic, but you are now tuned into yet another one of our weekly or sometimes bi-weekly episodes featuring uh, interviews from different orthopedic surgeons over a variety of topics. And today, we are going to talk a little bit about foot and trauma, so a little bit about both. We're going to talk about fifth metatarsal fractures. I think this is a, a good subject to know. Definitely, if you're taking call, you're going to see this. Uh, the ED will definitely call you about this. So it's definitely good to know how to take care of patients that have these injuries. And to talk to us a little bit more about fifth metatarsal fractures, we have Dr. Steve Behrens, who is actually a board-certified orthopedic surgeon with not just one or two. He is actually triple fellowship trained. So he is triple fellowship trained in orthopedic foot and ankle trauma as well as sports medicine so he is going to come and talk to us today about fifth metatarsal diversity he did his medical school at ross university school of medicine and he did university which he'll actually talk a little bit more about in the first couple of minutes of this podcast medical center and then he completed a third fellowship in foot and ankle at ortho carolina so i mean he he knows what he's talking about <laughs> so uh, i mean without further ado again if this is y'all first time listening to this podcast hit that subscribe button please go and leave us a review uh in itunes and then follow us on social media at nailed it ortho so let's go ahead and hop in into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole Dr. Barons, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you on, and I'm looking forward to this talk for the day. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you uh, for having me. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit before we got on air um, about kind of a little bit about your story and how you got into uh, where you're at now and your, your journey um, so, I, you know, typically at the beginning of our podcast, we ask our guests a couple of questions, just getting to know them. And so one of the questions is, is can you kind of, I guess, tell us about the story of what brought you to where you're at now and then why you chose your type of practice that you're in? So my um, my story is a little bit had a little bit of a circuitous route. Um, as we discussed, I uh, did residency at Brown in, in Providence and the way it's set up there, it was set up by James Herndon. Um, back probably, I don't know, 20 or so years ago, 20, I mean, even more. Um, he was a chairman at Pitt, Harvard and Brown. And what he, what he did to all the programs, what he thought was useful was incorporating this sixth year, which was a trauma year where you were kind of a, you know, we call them super chiefs, but a junior attendings. Um, and some of them have morphed into six months of research, six months of trauma. I think they do that at Pitt. Some of them have gone away. I think I don't know if even Harvard has it. Maybe they have a research year, but at Brown, they, they still had this, this sixth year, which was a gift of, of Herndon. And it, I think set Brown apart as a residency and was one of the reasons why I wanted to go there. Um, but it probably also scared off, um, if that's the right word, some people who maybe weren't so interested in trauma or, you know, looked at it as an extra year that, you know, we spend enough years training and they kind of just wanted to be done and go on to the fellowship of their choice. Um, I felt that that was sort of one of the best years of my training. Um, you know, so, so we did that trauma year after residency and you're kind of a, you're a junior attending, you, um, you know, have all the responsibilities of attending, but you have the phone a friend backup, you know, if you need it, which 
you often don't have, you know, when you get into practice. So that was, that was really helpful. And I think when you, when you finish there, you sort of, you know, you graduate with kind of a level of, of uh, confidence that you might not have otherwise, which I thought right. was beneficial. And what, one of the reasons I really uh, loved, loved the training. Um, I went from there and, and, you know, had an interest in sports, um, really enjoyed the injuries, really um, enjoyed more of the um, minimally invasive, elective, get people back to doing things at a high level, um, you know, career. Um, and then, you know, did sports at Pitt for that reason. Um, was in practice for a few years doing sports and a little bit of trauma because I do love trauma. Um, I wanted to keep that as a part of my practice um, and kind of felt, and I, and I joined a private practice at first, mostly because I wanted to move close to home. And my home was uh, uh, New York and, you know, towards um, the tri-state area, like Manhattan and Long Island area. So the, um, the practices there are, are, or rather the competition there is such that, you know, there's not an incredible amount of job opportunities in orthopedics, especially in sports. Um, so took up a job at a private practice, um, kind of found myself, I don't want to say floundering, but sort of finding it hard to find direction because you end up being, I think I, like I was telling you, like you kind of like the Jack of all trades, master of none. And, you know, I, I thought it would be hard to sort of develop, um, a particular academic interest with the ability to do research, carry that forward and become kind of like the person for a specific pathology or pathologies. Um, and, and was kind of afraid of what my career would look like in 10, 20 years. Um, and then the same, same time was kind of missing, um, foot and ankle surgery because I had a incredible mentor in, in residency. His name, Christy Giovanni. He's, he's at MGH now, um, was at Brown, uh, for a while. Um, his passion for, for foot and ankle and, and, and sort of the ability to kind of focus on trauma, sports, reconstruction, you know, a little bit of pediatrics, deformity. Yeah. I felt like everything, you know, in, in one. And I, I missed, I missed that. And I felt like I, you know, would prefer that as a future than, than the, the career in sports with team coverage and all these other things that didn't interest me as much as, I felt that it interests other people by kind of being on the sidelines and, and um, you know, taking care of athletes to that degree. So ended up being in practice for three years, um, was board eligible at the time, actually taking part two of the board, which is the oral part, like you guys know, um, yeah. then went to do a, you know, third fellowship, um, which, you know, I think we discussed briefly before, but it, you know, creates a little, challenge because you know you are you're a resident you're looking forward to finishing then you're a fellow and then you're attending you know you're 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 financially feeling like finally you know I'm, I'm able to you know afford some things now and maybe looking to a future or buying a home or all these things and you're like oh maybe I'm gonna do a fellowship you know so yeah. it creates it creates a set of financial challenges it creates you know some um family challenges you know if if your significant other or your family is now realizes they have to, you know, quote unquote, lose you for a little bit more time to, you know, to be, to be a student again. And then it kind of creates like sort of a little bit of an intellectual and I don't know um, what the right word is challenge because just from going to, I mean, we're always students, but going 
really from a student just kind of like a teacher to now a student again, you know, is, is can be humbling. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really look at it that way. I, I kind of looked at it as, you know, um, it was going to get me to, to where I wanted to be in 10, 20 years. I had a passion for it and I wasn't going to, going to treat it as a, you know, Oh, I know more than you do kind of thing. It was, I was there to learn, you know, and right. kind of go to the fellowship that was going to give me the best opportunity to learn as much as I could about everything and everything, anything and everything foot and ankle. Um, so I did a year in Charlotte, um, by far my best year of training, um, both from an academic standpoint and just relationships that, that, um, you know, that I formed. And if I, I think if I could give any advice, you know, to all of us that are, that are anyone listening and, and training, which is most of you, you know, it's important to find, you know, like-minded, good mentors that are, you know, willing to spend time with you, willing to kind of talk to you about everything, not even only things that are orthopedic, just kind of outside of life things. Um, and I, th I think that's very important. I think it's not, we don't have that enough in our, I'm sure a lot of people say this about their respective careers, but we don't have it enough, definitely in medicine, um, especially in orthopedics. So it's nice when you find those people that, that, you know, really you can turn to for advice and for mentorship and, and, and then they become, you know, your friends and people that you, you know, have these relationships for, for years. Um, so that, that's what I, I mean, I've met people all along the way and I can say that in different parts of my career, but I think, um, or I know what, what Charlotte afforded me was that mostly, um, and, and direction. So, um, I'm really appreciative of that. And it was definitely the best year. And from there, you know, I had that pri private practice job and kind of missed financial. I missed academics and, um, ended up getting a job at, um, hospital special surgery in New York. And this is where I've been since 2018 or late 2018. So, um, a little bit of a circuitous journey, but, um, happy, happy where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everybody has their, their own, um, journey, own story of how they end up to where they are. And, you know, uh, and everybody, I think at the end of the day does was, was right for them. And, and I just had a quick follow-up question to that. What is, if there are any, you know, major differences, what are some of the differences that you've noted between working with private practice and now, you know, working with at being at HSS for X amount of years, you know, for the past couple of years? I think one of the, one of the main differences is really the focus on education. Um, and you know, that that's multifaceted obviously, but you know, it starts with, first of all, like accountability and kind of, you know, you're, I don't know, you're fixing an ankle fracture, for example, keeping it close to home in the, in the foot ankle world, fixing an ankle fracture. And, you know, now that, that case is going to be presented at, at tomorrow's conference and it's going to be analyzed by, you know, few surgeons to be on the call or the zoom these days, or even in person that, that are more senior than you that have done like hundreds and thousands more than you. And they're going to be, they're going to be looking at those x-rays. So, so you making sure and you kind of being confident and you you're being accountable to doing great job, the best job that you can do. Um, and, you know, and being willing to learn from your mistakes and um, willing to get better and willing to acknowledge that there, there are likely people that are better than you at it and trying to always strive to be the best that you can be. So that's, I think one of the things that academics affords, at least good academic programs affords the ability to, for accountability in everybody and people striving for, for greatness. And, um, 
you know, not, not accepting anything less. Um, with that comes, you know, resident, fellow, medical student, PA, you know, nurse practitioner, um, fill in the blank student that, that, you know, that setting of, you know, hanging out with the, now I don't want to say young because not everyone's young, but like the, the young, the, the hungry, the people that are trying to learn, the people that are keeping you on your toes, um, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly trying to, you know, be the best at what you do, kind of a similar theme um, and with, you know, and changing with the times, you know, kind of learning, always, always learning and sort of evolving so you can teach the new generations, you know, the, the, um, the old techniques that work well and the new techniques that may work better, you know, and having kind of the full armamentarium of things to fall back on. Um, so education, I think, is something that is a huge difference between private and academic. And it's not that we all don't want to learn and we're not reading and we're not trying to get better, but there's just more of a push to it um, in academics. Um, and if you enjoy teaching, you know, you definitely lose that in private practice, whereas yeah. there's like endless opportunities in academics. And I guess thirdly, you know, oh, well, maybe secondly, because education is one, but research, you know, like if you, if I think kind of goes hand in hand with the academics, but, you know, if you're interested in research, if you're interested in, in, in participating in some way, it's definitely a lot easier when you have kind of a whole, you know, um, research arm division or the whole framework to, to get things done. It's a lot harder to do that. Um, if you're either not motivated or you're motivated, but you don't feel like you have the right setup. So that's something that, you know, good academic institutions support that it's harder to do in private practice. Um, so those, those are some of the differences that I found. And, you know, if you know, you'll, you'll realize, I think if you haven't already kind of which category you, you fit into, if, you, if you're someone that really enjoys the education piece, the academic piece, well, then you're going to miss it if you go to private practice, you know, for whatever reason, and you're going to, you know, be looking for that. Whereas if you went into academics, you're going to be like, you're going to feel like it was the right move. Um, that those are the kind of the main, the main things. And I, and, you know, and, and having residents and having fellows, the, the, yeah, sure. Sometimes maybe, you know, the, the case takes you a little longer to do because you're teaching or, you know, you're helping a fellow or resident through a case. Um, but you know, the, the, the dividends that are paid when that person's going through the years and, and now, you know, you knew you took part in that to make them the surgeon that they are is huge. And plus like they're taking care of your patients. And if you're, and again, you're at a good place, you know, they're, they're taking good care of your patients and you're, you're not doing as much of the, you know, um, heavy lifting you know, so to speak, or, you know, you're, you're not answering the call at two in the morning if you have a resident that's on call. So yeah. um, there, there are, there are those benefits that come along and sort of the way I look at it is that, you know, you're teaching them, you're, you're, you're getting something out of it, both by teaching them and feeling that and feeling and, and seeing the, the finished product, but you're also getting the benefit of, of, you know, the, the avoiding those like 2am phone calls. And then the, obviously the residents that were fellows are, you know, are getting the benefits of, of the teaching. So, you know, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice setup and, and it's something that it doesn't, it's not, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, but, um, I think, you know, it, it's, for me, it's, it's the right fit. Yeah. One thing I've noticed with the, you know, a lot of the, the 
guests that we've had on that have been you know in the academic position everybody is very passionate about teaching others and um, watching kind of that transformation that you know the student or the fellow or you know the resident goes through and, and you know something kind of gratifying about that and um, I think that's awesome. We, uh, you know, we we need um, people in academics to teach us, um, show us how to how to do things, and show us the right way to do things, and and be mentors, just like you said. I know you said you had a your mentor before, who's now at uh, MGH, and um, yeah, I think that's that's great. And kind of just transitioning and switching point, switching uh, topics. Um, I know today we're going to talk a little bit. I need where you know what you what you went back to fellowship for a little foot and ankle, and we're going to kind of talk a little bit about um, you know fifth metatarsal fractures, and uh, just a just a quick made up case that uh, that that's made up. Um, uh, Dr. Barron, say for example, you know you have a 21 year old male who uh, is a football player. He's a running back. He was referred to your clinic after being seen in an urgent care center. Um, found to have a fifth metatarsal fracture. They didn't tell you where it was. They just said it was a fifth metatarsal fracture and he hurts. And after you speak with him a little bit more, you find out, you know, that this patient had some um, um, foot pain prior to having this fracture. They were just playing on a, on a, um, on a painful foot. Uh, before we get all the way into, you know, how we treat this and, and what it is, uh, given the fact that we're talking about fifth metatarsal fractures, I guess in your experience, who gets these? Like, I guess kind of like, what's the etiology behind some of the players that uh, get these types of fractures? And 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 what is? Uh, I guess that's the first question. What are what, what's the kind of etiology and who who gets these types of fractures? Um, well, you know the the you know pursuant or similar to the case you described, you know the the fifth metatarsal fractures tend to be common, of course, in the in the athletes. Um, right, but. You know, you do when you when you're in practice, you will see them in the you know the elderly the elderly folk who maybe have some some bad bone, um, or you know you see you can see them in the obviously in the recreational athletes, someone even or even someone just walking on the street that kind of just steps the wrong way on a curb. Um, those are probably more commonly seen in, in like the private practice, you know, setting. Obviously, if you're a sports doc um, or foot and ankle doc, you you probably get more of the 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 athletes. Um, it also, you also see them in people that are kind of in the military, um, you know, people training for marathons, um, things that, that require kind of, um, high impact slash loading and they're doing it regularly and maybe even more than they're used to doing. Um, so, you know, putting extra, uh, stress on their and micro trauma on their bones, um, in this, in this situation, their fifth metatarsal, and then, you know, ending up what turned what was a stress fracture now maybe a a full-on um you know a full-on fracture um a lot of primary care docs see it too um and and sometimes you know they they send it to you right away and sometimes you know you might get it months later after a story like this where someone came in with some pain and maybe they didn't see anything on an x-ray and they just kind of said oh go back to play nothing's wrong you know might have been kind of a stress related injury um but uh, most common in athletes, most common in people, um, you know, that are doing this uh, heavy loading and, 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 and putting extra stress on it. Yeah. And, and every time I, you know, go and look and read on, you know, these physiometric fractures, whether it be ortho bullets or, or different, um, you know, different uh, 
articles or you know journals they always talk about different zones of of the metatarsal and i think that's kind of uh imperative to know those zones and then later on we can talk about you know the different mechanisms behind injuries in these zones and how to treat them but can you quickly kind of just go over what the different zones are of this uh, you know of the fifth metatarsal and um kind of i mean yeah can you, can you go through what these different zones are how many zones there are and etc yeah so when we're talking about zones we're really talking about you know the the um metatarsal base right the fifth metatarsal base and um uh you know Korg came up with a uh, classification system based on the anatomic location of where exactly the fracture is in that fifth metatarsal base so zone one which you have up there, um, um, or type one. Um, actually, no, you, you have the classification with regard to, at least on the screen now with the radiographic classification, but it might've been ah. on the slide. Um, there you go. So um, zone one fractures are, are those that are real proximal fractures of the base. They're, they're also known as pseudogones. Um, and it's right there at the, at the tubercle um, and often goes into the fifth metatarsal cuboid articulation. Okay. Um, you know, in, in this area, there's a lot of, as you note on your slide, there's a lot of cancellous bones right in the tuberosity. There's a great blood supply there. The perineus brevis tendon inserts there. So any, anywhere where you usually have tendon insertions usually is indicative of a, of a better blood supply. There's also um, part of the plantar fascia or the, you know, lateral lateral band of it uh, and search there um, as well, um, also indicating some blood supply. Um, and, and this area, the, the nice thing about it is that, you know, if um, it's an area that because it has a good blood supply, non-unions are, are uncommon, at least that's the way it's taught. Um, and, and anecdotally, that's, that's probably true with the caveat that I do see a lot of zone one fractures that go on to non-unions, but are asymptomatic and I know we'll get to that later, but the zone yeah. one is, is, is something that is proximal to the fourth, fifth articulation. So okay. it's something that's, you know, cuboid, cuboid fifth metatarsal and proximal, that would be a zone one or pseudo Jones fracture. Okay. Uh, moving, moving on um, and more distal, you have a zone two fracture, which is, this is what we know to be, the Jones fracture, the, the classically referred to. Um, this is at the meta, metaphyseal diaphyseal junction. And, you know, by definition, goes into the fourth, fifth metatarsal articulation. So anything that goes into the joint there is, is what we call a Jones. And, you know, we think that probably has something to do with the fact that it doesn't heal, maybe because is that joint fluid lubricating it. Although, you know, I, I'm not sure how much, you know, I, I, I kind of uh, jump on that because, you know, the fifth into the cuboid also has joint fluid. So um, I, I think there's probably well, more, to do, more, more, more to it. Um, but this is a relatively, you know, avascular zone, also known as a watershed area um, and has thus a higher risk of non-union. Um, I think up to like 30, 30, 40 percent of, of, of non-union has been reported um, Pretty high. In this area. Um, very high um, compared to the of zone one that that typically heal or if maybe don't unite bony are, are asymptomatic. Um, so, you know, that's zone, that's zone two. Um, 
moving more distally um, is uh, zone three. And this is proximal to that, you know, fourth, fifth metaphyseal diaphyseal junction. Um, this is a common area of fractures um, in athletes, kind of typical to the one you described, um, where they have some prodromal symptoms, they have a stress fracture. Um, and now there's, you know, an acute event where now you fracture through and through. Um, this also has an increased risk of non-union. And also this is kind of, you know, an area that um, tends to be, or an area fractured uh, more commonly in, in, in people that, you know, have some hindfoot virus or cavovirus foot, um, or even, you know, a Charcot foot where they have some, you know, sensory issues um, where they're walking, you know, overloading the lateral part of their foot and they're stressing the area. Now it goes on to fracture. So while it might not be as avascular as zone two, you know, it's still kind of a, you know, quote unquote, high risk stress fracture, one that, you know, has, have a higher tendency of going on to non-unions. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, or we'll probably get back to it um, a little bit later, uh, talking about the cable varus foot and these kind of zone three uh, injuries and, and talking a little bit about the treatment. Uh, but just to summarize what you're saying, so zone one is a little bit more proximal to that articulation of the fourth and the fifth. Zone two is fractures right through it that go into that, into that uh, joint of the fourth and the fifth. And then zone three are going to be distal to that. Um, more towards the toes or, you know, just distal to that articulation. And you mentioned it a, a couple of times about the watershed um, area, but can you kind of, what, I guess, what is the blood supply to the, to the uh, fifth metatarsal? And I guess what makes this in, important, you know, just kind of hammering home uh, this, this, uh, this concept. So, yeah, so you have a nice slide there, um, you know, and it shows the, you know, the, the intermedullary nutrient artery going in there, um, kind of in the, in the mid shaft area and then branching proximally and distally. Um, you know, you have these metaphyseal perforations, you have periosteal arteries, but you can see there where these metaphyseal vessels are kind of meeting the intermedullary nutrient artery vessels, you know, where the, where the branches are uh, proximally and right between there is the watershed area. It's right, that's, and that's where you get these Jones fractures, or if you have a quote unquote Jones fracture in the area, you can see how the blood supply comes proximal, comes distal to proximal, but there's an area where there's not, where there's not much. So where, where there's an area of poor blood supply, you're gonna get an area of higher non-union, you know, higher non-union rate. Yeah, and, and we briefly mentioned it earlier, and just in reading, um, just in reading, I saw about the kind of this TORG classification. Is this a use or is this just more for just like, you know, reading and knowing purposes? You know, I, I included it just because I read it and I saw that it was one of the classifications. But are there any other classification systems for uh, fifth metatarsal fractures or mainly just, you know, knowing the different zones and then knowing kind of the etiologies and then how to treat fractures of those different zones? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely used in the sense of describing you know, radio, radiographic, uh, characteristics. Um, okay. you know, I think, I think the, the history, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of orthopedic fracture classifications in general. Um, I do, I do think though, whatever helps you to remember, you know, the, the kind of bullets, like in this case, you know, zone two is in a certain area and that has a higher non-union and maybe you're going to treat it differently because of that. Okay. Well, 
then I think it's cool that you remember that it's called zone two. But in general, <laughs> right. the, the, no, I mean, seriously, the, in general, it's the principles, right, that, that matter most. And, you know, we try to lump everything into classification systems and they're valuable if it affects treatment. Um, and I think they're also valuable if you're trying to describe the fracture or dislocation over the phone to your attending, you know, in the middle of the night, um, or you're talking to an ER doctor and trying to ask him things, if he knew the classification system, that'd be helpful for you to, you know, to just, you know, have a disposition on that patient. So in that, in that way, it's valuable. The radiographic classification kind of clues you in a little bit into the, uh, the acuity of the, of the fracture. So, you know, the, the, and the slide you have up there is pretty good. So, you know, you have the type one where you have the sclerosis, which is on the, you know, lateral side, the, the fracture lines narrow. Um, you don't really have any sclerosis, you know, in the, um, in the um, intermedullary area as much, right? So this is something that, you know, is telling you there's probably more of an acute fracture there. Um, it might, you know, might've been on top of uh, stress fracture possibly, but it's more of an acute situation. Then as you kind of go up in the classification where you have a toric type two, you know, indicative of more of a delayed union, this is a situation where the fracture line is, is not as narrow, it's, it's wider. You have some intermedullary, you know, sclerosis there. And this is telling you that it's something that's like, it's trying to heal, but it's not quite getting there. Um, probably because of the blood supply issue, or maybe because the patient wasn't immobilized, or maybe they were, you know, they're walking on it or, and, you know, doing too much, you know, um, too much impact activities. So, uh, or loading rather. And then, you know, further you go on to type three where, you know, there's a full on non-union, um, you know, you have, you know, it's wider, um, uh, intermedullary and on the cortices and there's like no callus there. Right. So this is something that just really went on to, to not heal at all. So it kind of tells you really where you're at, you know, with this patient, you know, and, and was there a prodromal kind of setup here? Was this something that, uh, that was trying to heal? Is this a biology issue? We already know there's, we already know there's a vascular issue in that area. Um, so how long, this kind of clues you into how long this has been going on um, and may help you, you know, determine how you're going to treat it. So, you know, it's more, it's more of that, but this is kind of what you would see. This is the classification system in, you know, metatarsal fractures and Jones fractures, but, you know, you can kind of translate this to other stress fractures or other fractures in the body, you know, um, at least with regard to the cortex and the medullary, you know, canal. Right. So it kind of clues you in towards, you know, what type of injury it is. And just like you were just saying on the radiographs, this is, you know, when you see a non-union somewhere else, it may look very similar on the x-rays where you, you know, you have those corticated edges and, and you know, the, the medullary canal is blocked. Um, but this, this, I guess, TORG is, is for the fifth metatarsal. The, this just gives you an idea of, of how long the injury is going, been going on for and what the injury um, you know, just like you were just saying, what the biology of the injury is, and and we turn and we throw around this uh, this term, the Jones fracture, and maybe we can just do a little quick history lesson. But why is this called the uh, the Jones fracture? So this this um, gentleman Robert Jones, um, in the slide there, um, you know, you kind of show he was around the late or mid eighteen hundreds to the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, he actually, you know 
published this classic article um, and you, you know, nicely quoted from it, you know, the fracture at the base of the fifth metatarsal bone by indirect violence. So really, you know, not someone stepping on your foot or hitting you or something like that. Um, you know, something that, that, you know, occurs indirectly. And maybe he was even suggesting, um, you know, the, the stress related um, fracture, you know, that comes yeah. over time. Um, but, you know, he, he described six cases and he actually had one, um, you know, reportedly while, while dancing. So it's from him that we kind of get our, you know, nomenclature in that, of that particular fracture. And I think, you know, I, I haven't read this, his particular article, but, um, you know, I think through the years we've, we've, you know, kind of divided that base area into the zones that we described to better understand the ones that maybe heal better and the ones that, you know, go on to maybe give us trouble. Um, so, but he's, the, he's, you know, kind of the, at least the first that we know of to specifically define, you know, that area as being, you know, problematic and, and, you know, an area that, that fractures. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I just thought it was a cool. I was reading on it as, like, Oh, he's, he was dancing, sustained a fracture. I feel like for med students or early residents early on in their, um, foot and ankle rotation, it may be a good quote unquote pimp question that <laughs> they may get asked. So this may get somebody some brownie points. I'm not sure. But um, anywho, continuing on and kind of moving forward and kind of talking a little bit about the history and the mechanism. I know we we've kind of already spoke already and said, you know, this could be too, due to an acute um, traumatic event or it can be due to kind of this chronic, you know, patient may have a stress fracture or a stress reaction, which then turns into a, you know, full bone fracture. But I thought what we can do as far as, you know, talking about these different zones and the history and, and kind of how the mechanism of injury uh, is different in these, uh, in these different um, uh, zone injuries, you know, from kind of zone one to zone three. So um, can we, what, what is, you know, what are some things that are possible things that we should just know or be on the lookout for when we're talking to these patients, trying to elicit a history and figure out the mechanism of these different types of injuries for these different zones. Yeah. So, so again, like, um, pursuant to my hatred of, of classification systems, the way I, <laughs> I, I kind of remember, at least started to remember it because, you yeah. know, you never know you're like zone one, zone two, zone three. Well, is zone three proximal and zone one's distal, at least when you're kind of first learning, you know, to, to help you remember, I mean, the, so the, the, you know, perineus brevis inserts on the tip on a tuberosity there. Right. So what would put, you know, that tendon on stretch? This is the way I think about it. Right. And so right. you put that tendon on stretch, you're more likely to have kind of an avulsion type injury. And to do that, it's plantar flexion and inversion of the hind foot. So that's why when you have poor foot supination, plantar flexion, and, you know, you're, you mentioned there, your, you know, your lateral band of your plantar fascia inserts there too, but your brevis is under tension and, and that, you know, over, overpowers the bone there and, and, and avulses a piece of bone. And because it inserts laterally, the brevis, that is, you know, the, the fractures tend to begin laterally um, right. and then they extend more proximally, you know, either proximal to the metatarsal cuboid joint or through the metatarsal cuboid joint. Okay. Um, in zone two, you know, this is kind of an area again, in the, in a watershed zone, again, the fracture begins laterally and extends, you know, immediately, um, you know, unfortunately sometimes through the fourth, fifth, you know, metatarsal deficit articulation. Um, and this 
occurs with the, you know, forefoot, um, really with, I think, forefoot adduction, which is what it does. So you, you often see these injuries, you know, kind of on the football field where the foot's planted and the body kind of goes lateral, but the foot stays planted. So essentially it adducts and it cracks, right? Okay. You know, in that, you know, watershed, watershed zone. Um, and this is also, you know, kind of, uh, kind of an acute injury. So the zone one and two are really these acute mechanisms. Okay. And then, and then what about for our, uh, our, our zone three injuries or these, I guess, more diaphyseal type injuries? Right. So these, these are more, these are more just, these are more distal, um, to the zone two. So distal to the fourth, fifth. And I keep saying fourth, fifth, because, you know, on an X-ray easy, right? The, the fracture line, if you see the fracture line going into the fourth, fifth articulation, that's by definition a Jones. If it's distal, just distal to that, it's a zone three. If it's just proximal to that, wherever it is, it's, it's a zone, it's a zone one, right? So Correct. in zone three, like you, like you said, this is, you know, from the, the stress related micro trauma, repetitive micro trauma, um, you know, where, where you're constantly loading. These are, this is the fracture that occurs um, on the people that have the, the, you know, um, the malalignment, which we can talk about a little later. Um, but this is the things that th these are the fractures that occur. People that have the prodromal symptoms, um, you know, you know, again, like they, um, and then, and they have a high, not higher non-union rate. They're slow to heal. Like, like, um, like you mentioned there. Yeah. And, and we briefly touched on it before, but so, you know, a patient comes into our clinic you know, they, they don't have any x-rays, you know, they, they were just told they have this, this fracture. What, you know, what films are you getting just to, you know, cover your basis um, for, you know, these fractures? Right. So, so someone that, you know, described an injury or, or similar to the, the football player that you mentioned, you know, has this lateral foot pain been going on for a while, um, whether they're important injury or not, you know, um, they're going to get, at least in my you know office, they're going to get weight bearing um, foot X-rays, three views of the foot. Um, so you know, in, in this case, we're looking obviously at the at the fifth metatarsal. Um, you know, the AP is you know is really an oblique of the of the fifth metatarsal. Um, a good oblique of the foot really shows you a good AP of the fifth metatarsal. And and if you look closely here, maybe harder to see on the AP here, but um, you can see a little bit of of, of something going on laterally in the cortex and the AP, but I, you know, um, not really sure that much until you look at the oblique where you can see that, you know, kind of quote unquote dreaded black line, um, you know, yeah. kind of coming, coming laterally there. And I'd say, you know, this is sort of borderline, um, but maybe, you know, more of a, more of a Jones, but, um, borderline meaning zone two, zone three, right. So right. depending on where that fracture is going medially, which I can't, tell um at least on my on my um computer now but it looks like it might be going into the fourth fifth um but you know this i would probably call a jones and then and classically sometimes you know these tend to have um, more plantar involvement um which is really a kind of an ominous sign um when you have that because these again these are the ones that go on to more of the non-unions but you can see the you know plantar fracture line there maybe not not so much, but you know, these can end up being some plantar gapping. Um, but this looks like to me, um, a stress related issue that, that has gone through and through, 
um, or is about to go through and through. Um, yeah. But the nice thing about the nice thing about you know the reason I mentioned you know weight bearing, the views are are they're not they're not useless, but there's so much more use in getting weight bearing X-rays when you can in foot and ankle. It tells you so much more, mostly about the biomechanics and the and the, the loading uh, condition of the foot, the position of the foot when loaded rather. Um, and you can look, you can see this on the, on the, on the, uh, lateral, you know, this person's foot, it looks actually relatively maybe slightly cavus, um, um, or, um, you know, at least, uh, or neutral, um, in with this x-ray, but you can draw your know, lines from Muri's line and kind of, kind of see where the, at the position of the, of the, um, of the foot. So very important to get weight bearing x-rays. Yeah, and you, you took the question out of my mouth. That was literally uh, what I was about to ask you, and you answered it. So I think that was a great job that you did that. And so, do you, is in, in your practice, is there any role for getting a CT scan or an MRI in any of these patients? I think there's, you know, some use in getting um, uh, an MRI um, if maybe you're not certain um, there's a fracture or you're not certain. Um, maybe you have a suspicion that there's a, that's a stress-related injury. Um, maybe maybe you got a radiograph that didn't show anything or a bone scan that was equivocal or something. And, you know, you, you'll, you'll see it there on the MRI. It's, you know, probably the gold standard for, for, uh, or at least a high uh, negative predictive value If nothing there. It's probably nothing there. Right. Um, right. So you would expect to see some, some, you know, high signal and, and edema there, um, you know, um, on an MRI. So that would be my reason to get it. Maybe your suspicion, you know, the, the, the CAT scan, I rarely get, I think, it may be useful, you know, if you have a patient that, um, you know, you're trying to say if it's a delayed or non-union, you fixed it. Um, you want to see how much it's healed, um, in that situation, or you're making, you're making a decision on return to play, um, you know, high level athlete, and you want to get a cast in showing it's fully healed. There are some people that do that. Um, I think that's maybe falling a little bit out of favor recently, you know, where we're having a little bit more confidence in our fixation, uh, more confidence in, um, you know, history of how it's feeling to the patient, um, you know, maybe protecting them in some ways that maybe people aren't waiting to get a CAT scan. You know, the, the classic teaching when I was a resident was, oh, you want a CT scan showing it's fully healed before you let them go back to play. Um, not necessarily, you know, where we're at now, but you can get it to, you know, kind of evaluate how much it's healed, you know, kind of in a three-dimensional way. Yeah. Is, is that a thing where it's like, oh, if it's greater than 70% healed or, or does it like 99% all the way healed? You know, is there a parameter just since you mentioned it? It was more of a, yeah, it was more of like a fully healed, ready to okay. go. If it's not fully, all if it's way. not fully healed, you know, not, not really. But uh, my, you know, from talking to a lot of the, the team docs, it's really, you know, it's really a symptom, symptom thing and, and an x-ray evaluation um, reserving CT scan for kind of the, you know, the, the, you know, questionable, um, you know, ones. Okay. And just moving forward. So, um, you know, we, we've seen this patient, you know, we've uh, gotten x-rays, we've diagnosed them with, you know, a fifth metatarsal fracture and, you know, there another different treatment options for different zones, different types, but what, which of these fractures are you treating non-operatively? And then what is your non-operative treatment regimen? I mean, so th there's a role really for non-operative, you know, treatment in all of them, um, depending on, you know, the patient, um, what's their activity level, 
you know, are they a high level athlete or are they, you know, um, an 85 year old who is pretty sedentary and, you know, there's that was just walking, maybe bad bone quality and, and fractured. So there's, there's a role for non-operative treatment, um, in all patients. Um, I would say, however, that, you know, you can pretty confidently treat pretty much all patients non-operatively, you know, with, you know, non-displaced zone one fractures, um, you know, and, and even ones that are, that are mildly displaced, um, because a lot of them heal, um, and, you know, a lot of them heal by, by, you know, six weeks, two months, um, you do, you know, you do, you might in some of these patients get some, um, situations where you don't have bony union and you have, you know, these, these fibrous unions. Um, but if you do have it, they're typically asymptomatic. Um, and if uh, of those you need to fit to, to address the, the fixing of the situation, isn't too challenging. Um, so definitely we treat more zone one fractures non-operatively, um, you know, and this is really just protective weight bearing in either a boot or a shoe, um, you know, that's typically fine. There's, there's stable fractures. Um, and then, you know, there's this question, the classic teaching was, you know, you have a zone kind of two fracture, um, you know, or zone three, three fracture, um, these are, you know, kind of high risk fractures. So maybe we want to, you know, non-weight bear them. Um, and, and the way I was taught, oh, you non-weight bear people in a short leg cast for, for, you know, six weeks, eight weeks. I mean, it's pretty morbid, um, especially even in an older person who's not an athlete, you know, that now you're setting them up for maybe, you know, uh, you know, DVT, um, possibly or increasing mm. their risk at least, um, you know, these definitely have a higher non-union rate. So the thought was that we'll keep them immobilized, you know, and that'll help. But I think more people, more people are not casting them. You know, I don't, um, at most they'll be in a boot, you know, and, and potentially depending on their activity level, um, age, they might be protected weight bearing or non-weight bearing. Um, but I think people are, are moving towards, you know, protected weight bearing, you know, in a boot. Um, for those ones that you're not going to, not going to fix, but as you, you know, see, as you see on the slide there, um, and that's pretty accurate, you know, some of these can require, you know, five months, you know, for these zone three fractures to heal. I mean, that's unacceptable, um, for pretty much everybody, right. Unless you're right. not ambulatory, you're, you're five months, you know, immobilized, you know, maybe, you know, not walking on it for a while. I mean, that's, that, that's a long time. Life. It's a long time. So you know, I, that can't be the, the solution, right? I mean, if that's the solution, non-operative, then, you know, most of us would elect to fix or even have one fixed if we had it ourselves. So, yeah. And, and I saw, well, at least when I was reading one of these articles, they had these little like metatarsal functional braces. I, I had never seen before reading this article. I don't know if this, is this something that, have you ever seen this used? Is this still used or just, was this more like of a historical educational, like, you know, this is also an option. Um, I've never seen one, um, read about them. <laughs> I've never used one. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess the only benefit of this verse, you know, I'm lo in looking at it, right. Like, um, it might be hard to get a shoe on over that, but that would be my yeah. only thought as to why it would be better than a hard sole shoe because, you know, you can walk in both. Um, this is pretty cumbersome 
Um, and even if you can get a shoe on it, I'm, I'm assuming it's not that comfortable. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't see, I see, I see if I had to wear that versus a hard sole shoe, I'd probably choose a hard sole shoe. Um, so that's pretty much my go-to for these ones that I'm going to treat non-operatively. Uh, it's a hard, you know, it's a hard sole shoe for the most part. And, and, and those you still have, is this protected weight bearing? You don't have any of them non-weight bearing, like, um, uh, even, even your zone twos, you still have them protected. I mean, it depends. I think, I think if in a, in an older person, for sure. Yes. Um, in a younger person, you know, I, if, if they're very active, I might want to slow them down a bit. I might, you know, keep them off of it for a few weeks, um, you know, or, or fix it. But, um, someone who's older, I, I really try not to have them non-weight bearing because I think it really increases the morbidity of it and other things happening. It okay. really, you know, you really try my best to keep, you know, elder, you know, as elderly, but older people moving. Yeah. Okay. Moving. And, and that being said, on, on the opposite side of this, now we're talking about the operative treatment, which we all love to operate, you know, is orthopedic surgery. Um, so I guess one of the ways I was thinking we could kind of split this up would be, I know we, we hate the, uh, the, the classification system, but if the, let's just say, well, I'll just say, uh, proximal, these fractures that are proximal to the fourth and fifth articulation, uh, the zone, uh, the zone proximal to the fourth and fifth articulations. What are the operative indications for fixing these? You know, I read, and, you know, there are different numbers on, on different things that I read, but you know, what, you know, I don't know if there's a general consensus about it, but what are some of the, what are the operative indications to fix zone one fractures? And then what are some of the options? Um, so yeah, no, I shouldn't have said the word hate. I mean, I don't, it's not that I, it's not that I absolutely hate them. I mean, whatever helps, helps you to remember things. I mean, I just, I just think it's more important to, to learn, you know, the concepts, um, right, I agree. as to, you know, and, and why some, you know, what are the biomechanics behind it? Um, and if you understand the principles and the concepts, you're, you're not going to forget things. Classification systems are easy to forget, you know, um, cause they're just not random numbers. And, you know, if you don't know, you know, the, the, the why and the how, then, then you kind of lose the, you know, you, you lose the value of it. Um, with regard to, to fixing zone one fractures, I mean, I've definitely fixed them, um, for sure. Um, you know, it, it, displacement, I mean, greater than three millimeters here. Um, I mean, that's not an exact number. I mean, I think that I'm, I've surely not fixed ones that were displaced three millimeters. I've probably not fixed ones that were five millimeters. Um, right. I think sort of it's a, there is a gray zone here. Um, and I, and I think some of it also is related to the patient, right? So again, is this, what patient are we talking about? Very active, you know, middle-aged, older, you know, what they're, you know, um, what are they doing? What are they trying to get back to? So that, that's definitely, uh, you know, probably the most important, um, question. Um, the ones that don't, that are completely extra articular to the you know, cuboid joint, those probably can get away with, you know, more displacement. The ones that kind of go into the joint and are displaced, I probably have a more a tendency towards fixing them if they were, you know, call it five millimeters. Um, I think the comminuted ones are, you know, this, this particular size has fixed them. You know, if I had a comminuted fracture that was non-displaced or a comminuted fracture that was displaced a couple of millimeters. I probably wouldn't fix it because um, okay. I think they're, they're, challenging to fix perfectly 
they probably will do well if they either if they heal bony or if they you know have a fibrous union and if they don't i can easily handle that later right i can because the, the treatment for zone one fractures here i mean you have a picture of it fixed with you know kind of a screw and tension band um you know construct um sometimes they're not amenable to a screw maybe the, or maybe the piece is really small um you can't really put a screw in it you can't really put a tension band in it so the treatment would be take the piece out and you know tack the brevis you know parent's brevis tendon down well that's the same treatment that you would do if it didn't heal and it bothered the person so you're not really burning bridges you know um if you don't you know fix some of these and you might you know um get more to heal that you might otherwise have operated on so um you know, if it's really displaced in a, in an active person, then I, then I would operate, but I, I tend towards non-operative treatment of the zone ones if possible. Okay. And I think that was a good summary for our zone ones, but now I, the, the meat of it, I guess would be our zone two and threes, but so for your zone two or your, you know, your true Jones fractures that go into the uh, articulation of the fourth and the fifth uh, metatarsal, what are your operative indications for those? And then uh, in a bit, we can talk about, I guess, different techniques and why you use different screws and screw sizes and, and whatnot. But what, what are your operative indications? Yeah, so I think um, I think it's correct, you know, um, on the slide saying, any, you know, any displaced fracture, um, you know, in an in a active person, um, I, I'll keep the, you know, non-active or non-ambulatory or elderly, you know, kind of, you know, kind of out of, out of it. But otherwise... And, you know, if it's displaced, it's a high risk of non-union. I think it's reasonable to, to fix it. Um, you know, uh, especially, you know, if it's acute, um, and that's, that goes for definitely the, the, the situation where it's like a stress, stress related, you know, injury that now fractured through and through, um, in an acute situation, you know, you, you show here is less consensus. It's definitely true. Um, you know, there has been some studies showing that, you know, in the athletes, you can get them back to sports a few weeks quicker. Um, you know, in the non-athletes, it, it, it probably heals quicker when you, when you fix it. I mean, the, the, the fixation is typically with an intermedullary screw. And if you do it right, it's a pretty relatively straightforward procedure. Um, and if you can, you know, chop off a few weeks of recovery time, get them back to work or sport quicker, I think it's reasonable to, to, you know, to fix these. Um, and then, you know, you avoid the situation of a, of a, uh, you know, delayed or, or, uh, a, a non-union. So I think from a time perspective, um, you know, and, and the fact that it's a relatively straightforward procedure in the right hands, these are these, you know, considering to fix these, um, you know, it would be my preference or I would, I would err towards fixing them in the, um, you know, in the healthy active patient. Right. Yeah. That's, um, that's pretty much right along with what I read and again in that healthy active patient or in like, you know, the, the athlete that comes in, you know, with these types of injuries, those would be ones that you'd probably fix. And then uh, for your, Oh, this is exactly what I was just saying, but for your zone threes for you, uh, what are, what are your, you know, your indications to fix those? So, you know, the, 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 these are obviously two different patients that you, you have up there. Right. Um, and I can, you know, I can criticize these x-rays a bit, but, yeah. um, the x-ray on the, on the left with the right foot, um, I'm not sure where the original, you know, uh, fracture was, but presumably it was a little bit more, 
proximal than the than the one than the one on the uh, and then the middle um, image and the and the the middle image that looks like it was fixed on the on the right of the screen. Um, there are th a few issues with the with um, all of these X-rays, but um, <laughs> just pointing out that the the middle one, you know, that technically you know technically the the zone one, two, and three are for the base area, right? Um, yeah. And yeah, I guess you could call that a zone three, but it's really a shaft fracture. Mm. Um, okay. And there's some, you know, there's some teachings that would say never fix a fifth metatarsal shaft fracture. I, I don't, I don't say any, I don't, I don't really ever use like ever, always and never. But um, there are some people that will say that, like, no, you never have to fix a, a, a you know, an acute like shaft fracture, which this looks like. Um, you know, this particular fracture, actually, I, I might have treated, you know, non-operatively um you, you know in that um image unless potentially it was a you know a professional high level athlete that i'm trying to get back quicker but you know i've treated a not a lot of those fractures at the middle image you know weight bearing ass tolerated um in a hard sole shoe and they do just fine and heal the fracture just fine um not you know not undergoing the surgery on the on the uh on the right um but um but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much my, you know, my biggest stall. You often, you know, the screw, while, you know, while that screw is not perfectly placed and it's too long and, you know, might even be, uh, well, presumably it's in the bone, but it's definitely too long. Um, <laughs> that, that one was probably for a Jones and, you know, that's what I, that would be my go-to um, fixation for, for a Jones or, or a proximal third metatarsal, but um, I probably would not would would usually not fix that middle image so if we you know if you have a patient and they have you know you have a young athlete and they have that jones fracture is displaced and you decide to fix it um what is your uh proposed uh, you know i guess your technique you know do you do percutaneous i know there are a lot of different techniques some tension band or some talk about putting a planar plate that i've seen in in different studies and then why what size screw you choose do you choose cannulated versus fully um versus solid screws you know what, what, what can you kind of give us a, a a rundown on you know just some of the technical tips so um you know my my first step so so i yes if i have a zone two or three um fracture that i'm going to to fix my go-to um is, is usually a, um, you know, a intermedullary screw. Um, that's, that's not cannulated. That's, that's solid. Um, my, but with regard to, you know, technique, I'm, I'm choosing, I'm doing a screw, you know, what, what do I do? Or how, you know, how do I proceed? You know, my first step in these procedures, really, I use the, the, um, the fluoro machine basically as a, as a, as a table, um, you know, as the OR table. Um, and I get a perfect images and, and, and draw out the trajectory, the exact trajectory of the screw where I want it to be um, on both the oblique and the lateral. Um, I, you know, I make sure that, um, you know, quote unquote, high and tight. So, you know, medial enough um, and um, high enough that, that I have the right trajectory. Um, draw those lines and where they intersect, you know, go about, you know, centimeter proximal or half a centimeter proximal make a, a little uh, incision and, you know, um, spread, 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 you know, down, down to bone, making sure that, you know, I'm avoiding sural nerves, sural nerve branches, you know, um, perineus, 
um, brevis and, um, you know, finding, finding the spot as opposed to just kind of like, you know, perking it in there, um, make a tiny, make a little incision where you kind of drew your perfect lines. Um, and then being really, you know, meticulous and careful about, you know, that, that K wire insertion, um, and, and direction, because that's the whole case. Honestly, like you, you get, you get that trajectory, you get it on point, like the first shot, it's, it's a sawbones after that. It's, it's an easy, it's a really an easy case, but it's very, that's the most technically challenging part of the case, getting, getting perfect imaging, getting perfect trajectory, getting perfect starting point, um, you know, on position of that, of that, you know, of that K wire. Um, so you get that K wire position, you know, perfectly down the, down the shaft. Um, if you look at that image on the, on the, um, on the right of the screen, you know, I, I would say that, well, first of all, the, the screws, you know, quite buried. Um, so, and it looks like a solid screw, which is good, but, uh, there's, there's a few issues. Um, one it's buried, which can be very hard to get out. Um, if you have to go back, you have a non-union and we need to get a screw out. So I would not bury screws. Um, I would, you know, um, keep them, you know, on the, um, on the cortex. Secondly, they might've, you know, lag by technique here. Um, but you know, you have a, a, a fracture that you want to compress and they put a fully threaded screw in here. Um, you want to, you right. know, you want to, you want to avoid doing that. You part, use a partially threaded screw. Um, pretty much we all use partially threaded screws, but you know, if they were, if they over drilled the, the, um, you know, fracture up into that point, then I, you know, I can't criticize them that much. That's fine. But you know, I don't know if they did that. Um, but this would be like the worst thing to do is just put a solid screw across it um, and not, you know, not do that. Then you're just kind of fixing the displacement or, you know, you're not compressing anything um, across the fracture site. And then, you know, you want to try to get the screw as big as you can. Right. So, so um, to fill the, to fill the canal, how do you do that? Well, you know, you have the K wire in there, you over drill the K wire with a drill bit um, and then you tap sequentially, right. You start, you know, you start with a four or five tap. Um, and, you know, you kind of see how that fills both radiographically and feel, you know, are you, with every turn of the tap, are you, do you see the foot move? Do you see the foot kind of, you know, cause so you can imagine, let's say you're working on the, you're working on the right foot and you're, you know, you're screwing the tap clockwise and then you, you know, you see kind of the bone torquing. Well, probably has a good cortical kind of good cortical fit. Right. Um, and then you you know, put that, you know, kind of, kind of tap in either you, know, you measure sort of the distance that you want your screw to be keeping in mind that you want all the threads to be across the fracture. Right. So, um, because if you do that then you know, you're going to get, you're going to get compression. If you have it, if the threads are crossing the fracture, then you're not going to get compression, which, which is what you want to avoid. So you want to choose a long enough screw that the threads are across the fracture, the biggest, diameter screw that you can to have, you know, good strength and fit and a short enough screw. So like this screw is too long, right? You can see how it's hitting the cortex, both on the, on the oblique there and the lateral, you want the screw to be way shorter than this, right? So threads across the fracture and screw that goes only to the point where the metatarsal is straight and not where it starts curving laterally there you know as you can see how that metatarsal has a little bit of a curve you don't want to put a a straight really stiff screw in a bone that's curved because 
you're just gonna you're gonna displace the fracture right when it hits the cortex um right. and also you can actually penetrate the the wall there the medial wall which would be bad too right and you have a you know kind of a um you know um a uh, um stress you know stress point so you don't want to do that so this is just some, those are just some tidbits so why, and you're saying, so one of the things you said was high and tight. Why, why do you want the screw to be high? Is that just the best bone, um, like just the best bony contact or why, why do you want the screw to be high and tight? No, it's the best, it's the best screw trajectory, right? Oh, so screw trajectory. yeah, so this one, you can see it's not, you know, it's definitely not tight against the, the cuboid there, right? Um, it's, it's actually, you know, looks like it's too lateral, right? So it's aiming too medial. If you aim, if you started the screw a little bit more medial here, you would have had the better trajectory of aiming a little bit more lateral. So you avoid abutting the medial cortex and then displacing the fracture, right? Um, right. And then the same thing, you know, on the lateral, you want it high because, you know, it looks like here it's hitting the dorsal cortex as opposed to kind of being a little bit down the shaft, you know, uh, a little bit more centered. But again, if you, you know, in this case, you would have got away with it probably if you took a shorter screw, because then you, you know, you wouldn't be hitting the cortex, but in general, close to the fifth metatarsal cuboid, you know, articulation, um, you know, as, that's the tight and the, and the high on the lateral. And what is the difference between using a cancellus versus a, um, versus just using a solid screw? Well, it's not, it's not really a cancellus versus, I mean, a, versus, a cannulated or, you know, like a, um, like a, non-solid like a cannulated screw yeah. versus using a solid more more it really for 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 strength so you know the last thing you want to happen is that screw to break because you know, if that screw bends or breaks it is a pain in the butt to get out if if the fracture doesn't heal so you want to screw that you potentially can leave forever and not take out and not worry as much about it breaking so much harder to break a solid screw than a cannulated screw okay and, and- and you typically you just try to fill the canal size up with whatever is you know whatever it taps to whatever it can get the best fit. So if it happens to be, you know, a six five screw versus a four five versus a three five, you just go with, with whatever you can get the most um, cortical fit. Is that right? Yeah, and usually it's like a four five or five five. Um, you know, like like a KD. You know, who had who actually had one of these and and had revision surgeries on these. Um, you know, he might have a bigger screw that fits his canal, but you know, for me, it was me, it'd probably be a four or five or five, five. Um, and then, you know, the nice thing about that, like, is that if you go back in, you know, the revision surgery, sometimes it doesn't heal. Um, you know, one thing that you can do similar to kind of like a tibia fracture non-union, you can do an exchange nail, you can do an exchange screw and you upsize the screw to a, to a higher diameter. Yeah. Yeah, and that's um that was actually gonna be the next before you know wrap up here in a second. That was gonna be the next thing that I asked was uh was uh any any non-union tips. I know I did one of these with one of my attendings and uh we ended up using some bone graft um to fill the non-union side. So I wonder if that's the thing that you use in, in your practice or if you've seen it used or if you have any other tips besides, you know, of course, you know, opening up the non well, it do you open up the non-union side or do you just ream? That that may be another thing to ask you as well. Um, I've seen it done in, in a few ways. I mean, it, it, you fix it, it doesn't heal. There's a few options. I mean, you can certainly, you know, take, depending on how you fix it, you can take the, the screw off. 
I'd rather screw out. Um, and you can open, you know, um, bone graft, um, maybe use some, you know, um, iliac, iliac crest um, aspirate, some BMAC, um, you know, some DBM. Um, and then you can put a compression plate on it if you want. Um, my probably uh, way, approach would typically be, you know, take the screw out, um, make a tiny, make a small incision uh, at the fracture site um, and put some, um, put some BMAC with some DBM. Um, Cause it's really, there's not much room there. It's kind of usually like there's, it's not like a big gap where you have room for, you know, a lot of bone grafts. So, you know, BMAC uh, combined with DBM tends to be, tends to be effective and then upsize the screw um, and compress, compress across there. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think those are all um, good solid tips and different techniques to use to be treat, to treat these. Uh, the other, treat by the, these the, other, the other, the other thing about, and I've seen, I mean, people put um, plates on cause typically, you know, the, the, the area of non-union tends to be lateral and plantar and you get some plantar gapping. And some people think that, you know, you put a plate, if you can position it lateral and plantar, that's ideal. Um, and some studies show that there's some pretty good, pretty good union rates by doing that. The other option, which I haven't seen much, but it's certainly, you know, a little bit out of the box option, um, is there's some newer, well, it's not really newer material, but there's some, um, you know, staples that are, that are, that are used in a lot of, oh, I've seen that. um, and the amount of compression that you can get in a night and all, and this is a whole nother talk, but the amount of compression <laughs> you can get, you can get in a night and all staple. Um, some studies show it's like 50 times the amount of compression that you can get in a lag screw. So really, you know, that, that, that could be an option too. Um, and I certainly, we can consider that in, in a, in a challenging case for sure. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, yeah, I'm sure you could have a, an entire talk on that. And um, and one last thing is uh, is uh, you know, postoperatively, is there anything you know postoperatively do you allow in the weight bear? Or do you just keep them immobilized for a short period of time? Um, anything that you do, you know, for these patients as you do fix? I probably would, uh, you know, keep them mobilized for a couple of weeks. Um, and and um, off of it, non-weight bearing for a couple of weeks, and then protected weight bearing um, in a boot, slowly progressing over the next few weeks. Um, that'd be my protocol. Okay. And, and if you have a patient that does have, uh, you mentioned we mentioned a lot earlier in the talk, a patient that has hindfoot varus may, you know, contribute towards leading, you know, having a patient that has, a, you know, prodromal syndromes end up having a stress reaction and end up having a stress fracture. So you fix a stress fracture. Do you do anything with the alignment of the foot or do you, do you, do you um, rely on your screw and hope that it heals? Does you, is there anything else that you need to do in those cases? You know, it's tough, right? Cause I, I think, you know, we sometimes we are, you know, you know, there's a ham, there's a nail and we're a hammer kind of thing. And if we find a problem, we want to, we want to fix it. Um, we know that obviously that, you know, Cavus, Cavus, you know, Hindvarus leads to, you know, can lead to more of these uh, lateral overload. I mean, my, my first step, my first, you know, line is usually not to address that, you know, so what people have like athletes have subtle Cavus or, some cavovarus deformity. Um, usually, the, you know, my inclination is to fix it and 
get them appropriate shoe wear, you know, with the appropriate orthotics, um, you know, either lateral heel wedge or four foot post, things like, like that, that you have on here, um, you know, to, to hopefully decrease the risk if they have it again. However, if they refracture, now we're talking, we're, you know, we're going to second surgery or something like that. Well, you know, it's their, for, it's their foot position that caused it. And it's probably their foot position that's not letting it heal. Then we would, you know, consider doing something. The problem is that, you know, with high level athletes, the like professional athletes, really hard to come back if you have a, you know, a heel slide. Um, really, it's a, not a very well tolerated surgery in, you know, in professional athletes. Um, so if I were to consider something in like a professional athlete, it might be more of like, you know, if, it, if it's a four foot driven situation, then we'd consider more of a dorsiflexion, um, you know, first metatarsal osteotomy, th that's better tolerated. Um, but I would try to offload that fifth metatarsal best I could with, you know, orthoses, you know, and, um, you know, kind of balancing out the, and making the foot more plantigrade. grade. Yeah. I think that's good to be able to number one, notice and then recognize that that is a problem because sometimes, um, well, not sometimes I could just see how you could have a patient that does have, you know, one of these uh, malaligned feet that ends up having these recurrent injuries. And if that ends up getting missed and, and not addressed, how that could lead to, you know, just kind of recurrent injuries in the future. And, you know, there are different um, uh, strategies to, to manage that. Uh, well, overall, uh, Dr. Barron's, I think this was a great talk. I think I, I learned, I definitely learned a lot. Um, about Jones fractures and these kind of these fifth metatarsal fractures. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want the uh, people to know or take away or any anything else that you think is important to know about these, I guess, kind of these bases of fifth metatarsal fractures? No, I mean, I, I think um, we covered a lot, um, a lot of ground, um, you know, and, and didn't really think that I, th I thought, you know, we definitely get through this before the time allotted. So, um, I think the, uh, the fact that we were able to talk about this for over an hour is, 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 <laughs> is, is, is if anyone listens to this, they must be really interested in, in, uh, in, in, in fifth metal fractures and, and foot and ankle. And I guess, I guess all, you know, what I, what I would say to people, just, just a kind of like a word of advice, like when you guys are looking for jobs, looking to see, you know, for careers and stuff, I, like I said, you know, find, find, you know, good mentors, lean on them, you know, um, and, you know, choose, choose jobs that, that you're going to, obviously you want, you know, you want to love what you do and make sure that you're able to do that where you are, but choose, you know, being with good people. So, you know, make that a high. And sometimes it's hard to know, like, you know, sometimes you go to a practice and you're like, Oh, this is awesome. I'm, you know, in the field that I want to do, I'm going to, you know, it's gonna be high volume. And then you, you find out that you don't like people, but, you know, put that kind of high on the list of importance as, you know, to, to get a feel for your partners, or at least if you don't know them, talk to people that know them, because that, you know, that's going to make, that's going to make a, a, a great situation, or it might turn a great, you know, um, pathology situation where you have great pathology that you're treating and in a bad situation, you know, if, you, if you're not working with people that, 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 you know, you get on well with. So, um, you know, lean on your mentors and, and, you know, don't, don't chase the, the financial piece as much as you chase the work environment and who you're, you know, who you're with. Dr. Barron's, I think that was solid advice for those listening. 
Um, we want to thank you again so much for coming on the podcast and coming and talking about fifth metatarsal fractures. Uh, again, I think I, I learned a lot. Um, we always, as always at the end, we always give our guests an opportunity. If you have any social media or anything that you want people to follow you on or, uh, you know, follow you or, or, or reach out to you or anything, if you have something great, you can feel free to um, share it to the folks. If not, that's completely fine as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, for all y'all, if you guys want to, want to chat about anything, um, or either orthopedic related foot and ankle related, you know, um, need advice or, or just want to you know, talk about a challenging case. Um, you know, you can feel free to, to, um, to email me. My, my website is my, uh, under my first name, my, actually my whole name and, and HSS. And my email address is my last name, Behrens, B-E-H-R-E-N-S-S at hss.edu. You know, feel free to, feel free to shoot me an email um, and we can chat further about, about anything. Happy to, happy to help and really, you know, appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to y'all today. Of course. Again, thank you again for being a guest and those that are listening. Thank you for listening to uh, another episode of Nailed It With The Podcast. Again, feel free to go ahead and hit that subscribe button and um, go and leave us a review in, in Apple or however you listen to this and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode. So until next time.